This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, which is the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is on vacation this week. On today's show, author Daryl McDaniels, the DMC of the hip-hop band Run DMC, discusses his memoir, Ten Ways Not to Commit Suicide. Then, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot gives us a recap of the first six months of book sales for the year 2016. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So, Slim Pickens today, both fiction and nonfiction. We do have uh, the most recent James Patterson novel, called The Games, written with Mark Sullivan. And this uh, perfect timing for the Olympics in Brazil, uh, it's, uh, well, it takes place there. Home to the beautiful white beaches, gorgeous women, stunning natural beauty, and the world's largest carnival celebration. They know how to throw a party. This is uh, from the uh, uh, publicity on the back cover. And uh, this is all about uh, two years after the action nearly spilled from the field to the stands during soccer's championship match. Jack is back in real for the Olympics. So lots of sports here. And again, it's called uh, The Games, a private novel. Uh, number two, First Comes Love by Emily Giffen. Fans of Giffen's will find much to love in her chronicle of the rocky relationship between two disparate sisters 15 years after the death of their older brother, Daniel. We say Griffin manages to explore numerous themes about the sibling relationship, holding on to the past, expectations, and forgiveness. This is Giffen at her finest. It's a fantastic, memorable story. And uh, at number 12, again, as I said, Slim Pickens, we do have a Chuck Palahniuk graphic novel called Fight Club 2. And pretty nice to see a graphic novel, you know, in the top 20. This is at number 12. Doing well. We don't have a review of this just yet, but I'm sure we've got one coming. And nonfiction, we have slim pickings, but we have a lot of political books. Uh, the first one is Crisis of Character. A White House Secret Service officer discloses his firsthand experience with Hillary Bill and how they operate by uh, Gary J. Byrne. And uh, Byrne uh, served uh, in federal law enforcement for nearly 30 years. And uh, while serving as a Secret Service officer, Gary protected President Bill Clinton and the first family in the White House. So we don't have a review of this, but that's at number one. One. Number three, we have by Eric Bowling, Wake Up America, the nine virtues that made our nation great and why we need them more than ever. Bowling is a, a Chicago native and a Fox News Channel personality and co-host of the show, The Five. We don't have a review of this, but we say the uh, uh, publicity material says America was built on nine distinct virtues which shaped the character of our nation and made it great. So here he says, it's precisely these virtues that are now under attack by the radical left of Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and all their followers. So uh, we have Eric Bowling telling America to wake up. Uh, another political book we have, uh, number 22 by Dick Morris, Armageddon, How Trump Can Beat 
Hillary. One more, number eight, a non-political book. We have House of Nails, A Memoir of Life on the Edge by Lenny Dykstra. And uh, Lenny Dykstra, uh, you know, people know him as a former uh, world champion, entrepreneur, and a all-star baseball legend from the Mets and the Phillies in the 80s and 90s. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Daryl McDaniels walks us through his 10 ways not to commit suicide. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Michelle Borba. I'm the author of Unselfie, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Daryl McDaniels, DMC of Run DMC, on the line. His memoir is 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. Hello, Daryl. So glad you could join us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What's good? What's good? Well, so uh, what made you decide to write a memoir? It's not any small undertaking. And and what made you decide to do it now? Well, um... The, the book came about because of this. After Jam Master Jay passed, nobody really seen me. You know, nobody really sees me. Unless you, at the school I visit, at the middle school I visit, at the adoption agency I visit, the group home I visit, unless you catch me on the road performing with my new live band, since Jay passed away, Rundon had, had 10 success, successful seasons of his reality shows. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So... Everywhere I would go, I would get these two questions. The first question is, why you ain't on Run's house? Is there beef? Is there a problem? And then the second question would be, what you up to? And I would be, no, it's no beef or problem with me and Run. You know, he's doing what he's doing. Actually, I just found out that I was adopted at age 35, and everybody knew. Oh, and it would blow people away. Or I would go, I just got out of rehab, and it would blow people away. So the book came about from me meeting people, People asking me what's up with me, I truthfully and sincerely and nonchalantly tell them, um, this is why you don't see me. And they would go, oh, man, I'm thankful you're all right. I'm thankful. Oh, we're glad that you're sober. We're glad that you cleaned up. But could you come speak to my daughter? And I would go, why? Well, my daughter's adopted, and we just told her that she's adopted, and she's going through all these emotions. Or I would get, oh, DMC, could you come speak to the kids? You need to come speak to the foster kids, because you was a foster kid, and they could relate to that. Or I would get, oh, DMC, can you come by the firehouse? And I would be like, why? Who's adopted? They would go, no, we saw your documentary about you searching for your birth mother, and you mentioned that you had alcohol problems. He said, right now, all the police officers and the firemen are stressed out, so they're drinking themselves to death. So the book came about for me telling people, as I always did on my music when everything was going great, you know, it's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. You know, everything I put on the record was about me, education, family, or the food I ate. You know, Wycliffe said DMC's the only MC that could talk about St. John's University um, chicken and collard greens at Christmas time and making gangster. So I was telling people, here's what I've been doing, here's what I'm going through, and people would want me to come to talk to people close to them or family members or people that they knew going through the same things. So eventually, after me, you know, doing my 500th um, group home visit or my 1,000th school visit or you know, going to the to, to, to D.C. to speak on behalf of the foster kids, people would just hear me do my little, you know, tell my story. And, you know, three times in a row I would get, you should do a book. 
You should do a book. You should do a book. And then I finally said, okay, I should do a book. So I did the book to do two things. Let people know what, um, what ha- what's been happening with me. And also to let people know, even though a lot of these events were shocking, tragic, um, hard, um, um, detrimental, you know, suicide and alcoholism and depression and, and low self-esteem and, and, you know, losing my voice. So I know what the athlete feels like that can't throw that pass no more. And he's going through realizing the fact nobody care about him, no more agents, no more managers, no more endorsements, no more friends, no more investors. But also on the same level, I know what it feels like when the guy gets laid off from his nine to five. I know what it's, I know what Kurt Corbain was going through, but I also know what was Sally was going through that killed herself in Maria, who's about to kill herself. So I realized I had to write this book so people could understand. Yes, I am the mighty king of rock. Yes, I am the microphone master DMC. Yes, I am the um, devastated mic controller. But I'm not different. I'm not better. I'm human. And I understand what you feel. And that's why I wrote the book, because I know it could help someone. I want to talk to you about uh, alcoholism, uh, depression, and adoption, and and I think we right. will. But I want to talk about the title of the book and and how uh-huh. you decided to structure it. I mean, these are ten ways not to commit suicide, and each one is right. an anecdote about a time in your life when you you had hit a depressive depressing moments. Right. So so tell us about that title and about the structure of the book and how the theme mm-hmm. came about. Yeah, the 10 ways not to commit suicide, everything that I've been going through is a good, well, it's not a good reason, could be a possible reason to commit suicide. Look, I lost my voice. Mm -hmm. Tim J gets shot and killed. Run DMC breaks up. I find out a secret that everybody held in because they loved me, but the whole time I'm living a life, my life's a lie. So I'm dealing with some of the most depressive stuff ever, loss, death, you know what I'm saying, low mm-hmm. self-esteem and depression. But the reason why I said 10 ways not to commit suicide, when I finally took it upon myself to go help myself by doing two things. First of all, making the decision to get clean and sober. And then second of all, making the decision to do something that many men, from all races, religions, creeds, and colors, and especially black men, will never do, and that is therapy, because they think it's soft or they think it's sissy. But I, I want to let people know, therapy is not soft or sissy. Therapy, therapy is gangster. But when I decided to help myself, I was able to revisit those feelings that made me feel that way, and then go look back in 84, Man, when I was in that room that time and I saw this person, you know, do this, um, you know, the music business is a hard place. So I've sat in rooms where I watched people do the most evil, selfish, um, um, despicable things just to get a check. I don't need to be around that. I realize now that I should have stood up spoke up, said something about it, and removed myself from that circumstance. But 
because I didn't want to be a troublemaker, because I want everybody to like me. I want to be considered a team player. I didn't express how I was feeling about that particular incident, so I held it in, Mm -hmm. not realizing that feeling won't go away even if I drown it out with 12, 40 ounces and five shots of liquor. Of course, I'll feel good for a minute, but when the liquor wears off, the feeling is still there. So 10 ways not to commit suicide is to identify how you're feeling in certain situations. Look what's around you. Look who's around you. Look what's going on around you. And either remove them or remove yourself from those situations. I stood in a a repeated, monotonous cycle of letting myself being poured down the drain into the, to the, to the, um, trash compactor of depression, which I won't do it again. So I'm able to use, since I'm DMC, I'm able to use circumstances and situations and events in my life to identify this is how I felt in 85. This is how I felt in 90. This is how I felt when Run did that. This is how I felt when they turned down some of my ideas to contribute to albums and I wasn't allowed to contribute. So Everything that I was going through um, emotionally, spiritually, and everything I was feeling had to manifest itself physically, so I lost my voice. Mm. And then when I lost my voice, Jam Master J gets shot and killed. So right. when those two things happen, I'm thinking I'm worthless. Look, people, I'm DMC. I am nothing unless I can rock this mic. But because of therapy and because I, I decided <laughs> before myself to get clean, clean and sober, I've discovered that I am worth so much if I never rap again. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's why I said 10 ways not to commit suicide is to identify who and what it is that make you feel like that and remove that thing, that person, or remove yourself from that situation. And talking about career, uh, uh, your life with with Run DMC, um, in Chapter 3, which is titled Career Decisions, it was interesting. The first line is, I am a liar. What's the story behind that? Well, <laughs> well what it is, is, is I, I give the appearance that I came into this career with this plan and everything that I did worked and, you know, I'm, I'm all powerful and, and, and I'm just gifted and, and I'm a genius and all of that. But that's not the true story. I kind of fell into this career. I grew up a little kid. I went to Catholic school my whole life. I was a straight A student. I was on the honor roll. And um, all I liked to do was read and draw comic books. That's all that I did. But when hip hop came into my life, it wasn't that, oh, I'm going to do hip-hop and get money, or oh, I'm going to do hip-hop and do all of these achievements, first to go gold, first to go platinum, walk this way and all of that. Oh, I'm going to do hip-hop because I'm great at it. Hip-hop for me, alone in my bedroom, the same way I used to read my comic books and play with my G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. hip-hop was, for me was just another creative, artistic, expressive outlet. Oh, wow, the MC writes rhymes over the music the DJ played. So I would just sit in my room and write rhymes. I'll make Daniels from Hollis, Queens. I go to school. You know what I'm saying? And that's all it was for me. Run discovered that I had this gift and this talent. So he knew he wanted to be in the music business because his brother Russell was managing all the early hip-hop artists before um, hip-hop records was made. And when hip-hop records started being made, Russell was managing Curtis Blow. 
So mm-hmm. run is this kid, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. He's watching this world evolve because Russell is working right out of his bedroom in Hollis, Queens, New York. Me, on the other hand, I'm only seeing the DJs at the block parties in the streets, and I'm only hearing the cassette tapes of the live performance of Grandmaster Flash and the Funky 4 Plus 1 and Curtis Blow. So to me, it's fun. You know, it's the same way I used to pretend to be Batman and Superman. It was the same way I was pretending to be Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel. But my perception, once I got on records in front of the world, that I was this almighty, indestructible, most lethal weapon in this hip-hop world. I'm the mighty king of rock. <laughs> no, that's not true. I'm, I'm really just Daryl McDaniels from Hollis, Queens, no different from any other boy or girl. Now, I did have the success. But then when the pressure of maintaining that success began, Mm -hmm. um, for certain reasons, you know, you start compromising who you are to get another record played on the radio, to keep that chart position, to make sure they look at you first so you could get that position on the tour and this and that. I was getting away from the very thing that allowed me to be successful in the first place. In the book, I talk about it. We got to a point where... Instead of just being Run DMC, we were trying to be Run DMC, mm. and that didn't work. Against, that that went against how who I was, so it made me feel different. But even though I felt different, I didn't speak up. So what I mean by a liar is, at certain points in my life, I was given a false representation to myself of who I am. Which also, by me doing that, means everything that I'm doing in front of y'all isn't real and true of me. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Dara McDaniels, author of Ten Ways Not to Commit Suicide. And we're talking about uh, the book, that is chapter on, on uh, career decisions, uh, his depression. And um, you start off the chapter with I'm Not a Liar, where, where here you are living... Uh, kind of a pretense that others will that you want others to accept and you touched on something and this was adoption which right. you learned that you were adopted it wasn't until you were 35 years old and this grown was uh, yeah a grown man you've 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 <laughs> you've led your whole life a certain way believing you were one person a certain person and um, right. and it was and you've told the story uh, before about it was a, a phone call with your with your mom uh, when you yeah. were doing a little bit of soul searching a little bit more about yourself tell us a little bit about that and and how it hit yeah. you it all started when I was at a point where I couldn't live with the, the the depressive feelings anymore it got to a point where everything was just so uncomfortable about my existence I can't rhyme no more um, um, without this DMC thing, I am nothing, I am worthless. If I can't be the king of rock anymore, what's the purpose of me, li- what's the purpose of me living anymore? Mm-hmm. So people know the DMC story. 
you could Google me, you could go to Wikipedia, you could, there's a behind the music on Run DMC. There was like two books written on us. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You could find out what me running Jay did. That's here. But just in case I do commit suicide tomorrow, I want the world to know about Daryl. So I said, I'm going to write a book. And in the book, I want to say, hey, world, what's up? I'm DMC from the groundbreaking rap group Run DMC. First to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover Rolling Stone, first with the sneaker deals, first with the big tour, first with the dope movies, blossy, blossy, blah, blah, blah. But I'm really Daryl McDaniels from Hollis, Queens, New York. I was born May 31st, 1964. And when I got to that identifying part of my who I am, I was like, I know my birthday, but I don't know no details about the day I was born. So I called my mama. And I'm like, yo, mom, I know my birthday is May 31st, 1964, but I just want um, you know, um, I want to know three other things about the, you know my birthday. How much did I weigh? What time I was born? Or what hospital? Cool. She told me those three things. Thank you. Bye. Hung up the phone. An hour goes by. She calls back with my father. With my father on the phone. And I go, hey, hey, Dad, what's up? And they go, we have something else to tell you. Now, I'm already at one of the lowest points in my life. Uh, voice gone. Uh, I'm an alcoholic, suicidal, metaphysical wreck. And then um, they go, well, you was a month old when we brought you home and you're adopted. But we love you. Bye. And that's how I found out on the phone. And that was a tragic, you know, imagine I'm already disillusioned. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm already in the pits of hell now to find out I'm not even my mother and father. So I really want to kill myself. So it's all, it's all about identity. You know, you, you think you're one thing and then you find out that that thing is, there's even more to who you are. And, and the funny thing about that is my brother, Alfred, who's, um, my mother's biological son, he says, D, don't you know if you never would have asked those questions, they would have took that secret to their grave with them. They would have never told you. So that pushed me even further into the depression. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, but the, the the funny thing is when, when, when that was revealed to me, even though that was a traumatic revelation, there was a kind of peace that came over to me because this, this, and that's what I mean by that. When I was doing a soul search, and I was like, okay, I'm Daryl McDaniels, Bifer's my, Bifer's my father, Banner's my mother, Alfred's my brother, Run and Jay are my friends. This thing called hip-hop comes over the bridge from the Bronx into suburban lower-middle-class queens. Me, Run and Jay, we make a record. We put out an album and hits. We put out another album and hits. And then we do the phenomenal walk. So I'm soul-searching at my, um, you know, soul-searching every moment of my life. And then we had this immense success, but now here I am going into this alcoholic, depressive state of my life. I'm losing my voice, this and that. But even in the midst of all those bad things, along with the good things, there was just something that was missing. There's something don't feel right. And mm -hmm. the revelation of me finding out that I was adopted, even though it was traumatic, it added to a little sense of understanding who I'm. Okay, who I am. I'm Daryl McDaniels. I'm DMC from Run DMC. I'm, my life is shit right now, and I'm adopted. So even though it was bad, it kind of was a little satisfying to at least learn something else about myself, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. That was, and, but that was the catalyst of me realizing, even if I never rhyme again, and this is what's powerful, even if I never rhyme again, I still have a purpose. Because once I found out that I've adopted, I might not never rhyme again. So now people is coming to ask me, yo, DMC, what's up with you? How's the voice? 
what are you doing? And I go, well, I just found out that I was adopted. When I put that out there, all of a sudden the phone is ringing because now people want me to come talk at the group home. Now people want me to come to the adoption agency. Now the people want me to go talk at the talk to all the foster kids. Now Washington D.C. wants to bring me to the D.C. to give me the Angel of Adoption Award mm. that Denzel Washington and Sharon Stone and the like has received. And it started to teach me that even without the thing that I thought I was only the only thing that made me value it valuable. Even without that thing, I'm still worth something to somebody, mm. which makes me worth something to myself. It started to open up my eyes to my sense of, 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 it took away, the, the, it started to chip away at my low self-esteem. Right. If I could tell that story to somebody who is suicidal, who is depressed, who just got laid off, who can't play the sport no more, who can't sing no more. Um, you know, the little kid sitting in the house, his parents is about to divorce. It's the same feeling. So if I could express that I'm still worth something because of this, maybe I can make them see that in themselves. And it seems from what I've read and what you've written that you, you come from a close family. I mean, uh, and yep. uh, a, a loving family. And yep. it, it probably didn't change for for them. It, obviously, they they loved you. That There was the same love in the family, but it was an identity right. thing for you. Would it have been right. different, do you think, had you known – earlier on? Was it the fact that it was something that... That's a great question. Did you, you know that? That's a great question. Everybody asked me, hey, what would you have did if they would have told you that when you was little? The only thing that I could say that... only thing that now I feel that I would have done is um, I'd have probably packed a little knapsack and went out on a journey because I was so into superheroes, <laughs> thinking at seven years old I could go travel the world to find my real birth parents. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because, because like I said, my life, even when 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 people and people would always say, "D, you don't look like nobody in your family." You know, I would always get that. Even my wife would say that. My best friend Terry, I talk about that in the book. My friend Terry, he would all when we would sit there and smoke weed. He was the only <laughs> guy that would sit there. And it was only t it was every time that only me and him sat there and smoked weed. He was the only one that would look at me and say, "D, you know what?" And I would go, "What? Your ass is adopted." Like he he knew it. You know what I'm saying? He was the only one with that. But it would go in one ear, one ear, and out the other. Why? Because like you said, there was no way in the world that I wasn't a McDaniel's. But that was true. My family, I like when when I go to speak to kids. Our relationship with our children and our relationship with each other is way, way deeper than flesh and blood. I was a McDaniels, and Byford mm -hmm. and Man was my mother and father, even to the point when I didn't know I was adopted in 1986 at the height of my career. And my therapist said, that was your spirit. That was your, your vibe, your aura, your presence, your soul proclaiming your legacy. Son of Byford, brother of Al, Banner's my mother and runs my. It's McDaniel's. Like I, I, I was mean with it. It was it's McDaniel's, not McDonald's. McDaniel's is the one over McDonald's. These Robs are Daryl's. Those burgers are Ronald's. And I said it. I ran down my family tree. My mother, my father, my brother, and me. It's because of Byford and Banner taking me as in as one of their own. Every school that I went to, my mother and father worked to pay for me. I had everything my brother had. So there was no fact in the world 
that Daryl McDaniels wasn't a McDaniels, but as a famous adoptee said that mm. wasn't celebrity famous, she's just saying it for she's just famous to all us, us adoptees who agree with her for keeping it real. She said the reason why an adoptee must do the search for their birth parents is because of this. Besides medical reasons, you know, I don't want to wait till something goes wrong and then realize that, you know, my father before me had cancer. Because think mm -hmm. about it. When you're talking about identity, when I was growing up, my father had diabetes. Mm -hmm. So when I would go for a summer job, is there anything? I'm writing down, I just diabetes, but it wasn't true of me. Uh, but that right. doesn't mean that's not my father, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, completely, so she, sure. Yeah, the lady just said this. Um, she said the reason why an adoptee should, she didn't say must, she said the reason why an adoptee should do the search for their biological parents is you never start a book from Chapter 2. Now think about DMC. Everything that I knew about me was everything the world knew about me. I thought it all started, the DMC book, the Daryl McDaniels book, the DMC story started in Hollis, Queens, but the Daryl McDaniels story Started, there was a missing chapter to my life that I didn't know about. Mm. I was living my life from chapter two. I'm thinking it all began in Hollis Queens, starting with Christmas time in Hollis Queens, when there was a whole other chapter to the Daryl McDaniel story. So when, when I kind of found out that I was adopted, it didn't give me closure, but spiritually, it just, you know, even though it, it was um, an unfortunate situation, it was kind of, okay, cool, I'm adopted. That helped a lot, but now how do I fix this feeling that I'm getting? Mm. But finding out that I, I, I was adopted brought about more emotions and feelings that pushed me further in because Run said this to me. Jay was like, yo, D, you could be Dominican because now that I'm adopted, I'm turning into this whole new person. My mother and father, they just given me what they know. They said, um, we think your mother was 18 years old and we think you're Dominican. They knew my mother was young. Because when they was doing the whole adoption process, they knew that my mother came from Hamilton Heights, which was up by Washington Heights, up in Manhattan, up in Harlem. So my mother and father thinks I'm the Dominican. I ran around for four years telling everybody I was Dominican. <laughs> and I love my wife because, you know, wives, they have a, a great, they have a common sense thing. She said, Daryl, don't you think before you run around and tell all these people you're Dominican, don't you think you should, you know, investigate to confirm that? And I'm like, no, no, no. My mother and father are right. They know what they're talking about, this and that. But the joke is when I met my birth mother, and I'm like, we're Dominican, right? And my birth mother looks at me and says, no, who told you that? So, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. But yep. The, the, the beautiful thing about it was is there was no way that Daryl McDaniels, everything that Daryl McDaniels is, was and will be was because of Byford and Banner and my brother Alfred and me being a member of the McDaniels clan. The beginning, you know, my birth mother was just the beginning of the whole Daryl McDaniel existence to the point where when I go speak to kids and adults, when I go to speak at adoption agencies, I say I I look I don't look at my two mothers as two different people when you say motherhood nurturing they just had two different jobs i always tell adopted kids um adopted kids we're special no we're really special our birth and conception is so dope it's so unique i'll explain it like you have a mom and b mom a mom is number one a number one the adoptive mother and parents is number one b mom her responsibility the b parents 
the birth parents, their responsibility was just to get you here. Here he is. Look at the little girl. Little. But it was a mom and dad to get you where you're supposed to go. If Bifin and Banner never came and got me from Harlem and moved me to Queens, I would have never met Run and Jay to be that third mm. member of Run DMC to find out this revelation that I got in common with so many other people so I could come back and start speaking about it. It's almost like some real superhero stuff. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. it, when I was ready to jump off the bridge, it was like the gods up in heaven. It was like Odin and, and Zeus and all of them and Yahweh and the Mighty One and the Almighty was, Father, he's about to jump. Go down and send the angels down and reveal to him his secret. They had to reveal to me. Son, you're adopted, but this all happened for a greater purpose and a reason than you can possibly comprehend. That's why it makes me know the Run DMC thing was just a setup to get me where I was supposed to go so that I can do what I was supposed to be doing. Because remember, when I was losing my voice, people was like, yo, D, man, you ain't never got to rap again, man. We, your legacy is set. We got those records. People would always tell me, yo, just keep doing what you're doing. I heard about you visiting the school. I saw you talking to the kids. I see what you're doing for the adopted people. So it's not about who you are and what you have. It's about what you do. That's your voice. You know what I'm saying? And everything started to make sense. So the whole adoption situation, I always tell kids, you are really special to the point where when, um, when, I, when I went to get the Angel Adoption Award, I remember I was standing backstage because... It's funny, they wanted to give me a, the award, but they also wanted me to go out there and sing Walk the Twain and Trekkie, you know what I'm saying? Right. They get me to perform the record. I remember I was standing backstage all nervous and stuff, and this old lady walks up by me, and she says, you're in a unique position, young man. And I was like, what you talking about? She says, um, you're no different from Moses and Jesus. Mm. I said, what you talking about? She said, think about that. Moses was put in the river. He floated down the river. Pharaoh's daughter found him. She took him up into the hassle, right? And they raised him as an Egyptian. And then it got to the point where God comes knock on Moses' door. Yo, Moses, I need you to do me a favor, homeboy. What you talking about? I need you, you, to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, right? So Moses goes, hold on, hold on. First of all, I'm not an Egyptian. Second of all, remember, Moses had a speech impediment. You know, if you know your biblical history, Moses had a speech impediment where he needed um, Aaron sometimes to kind of translate for him and speak to the people. And thirdly, thirdly, when you think you're worth nothing and you low life and nobody cares about you because of what you did or what you are, or what happened to you, or what disease you got, or what is your sexual preference or whatever. Thirdly, remember, Moses was the murderer. He killed the man. So Moses was like, I can't talk. I'm not even of this bloodline, and I'm a murderer, and you want me, lowly Moses, to go talk to Pharaoh? And God said, yep, you got to do that. So now when I go tell kids, I speak to kids, I said, your situation doesn't define who you are. You know, your father may be in jail. Your mother may be on drugs. You know, it's unfortunate that you're going through the foster care system, and you can't be with your blood relatives. But there's people put on this earth to get you where you're supposed to go. I'm an example of that. I had no idea this foster, this former foster kid who fortunately was adopted into a loving family would grow up to be not just a rapper, but the king of rock. And there is none higher. And I always tell the kids, don't forget, none higher. None means nobody. And they start, you know, you know, celebrating. And, yo, that's like me. I could be like you. And that was the whole purpose of it. I had to be an example. The DMC thing set me up. 
Yeah, let's mm. make him have all the success. He's, it was a reason I was the third member. But what I was trying to say earlier about running Jay, when I discovered that I was a doctor, run to be suck it up, fight for the band or your parents. And I was like, yes, I know that. That's true, I know that, but don't you know what this revelation means? There's another lady, this and that, this and that. Because I was different from them, and because they couldn't feel what I was feeling because they wasn't in my situation. Um, in the book, I talk about it. I would oh, I would find out where they were staying, and I would go to a completely different hotel. Now I'm I'm already losing my voice. I'm already alcoholic. I'm already um, suicidal. I'm already depressed. Now I'm bringing in the killing factor is loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it would have been better for me sitting around them having something to hate and feel like I'm punch running in his face, I'm a kick Jay in the jaw and I'm a I'm a I'm a blow up the limo that's coming to get us. Maybe that would have been therapeutically better for me. But I said I would I would ask my manager when we was doing shows during during my depressive period, we still out there getting money and all of that and I knew I gotta go get the money because I got a wife and kids I gotta take care of, but I can't even rhyme. But just the, the fact that I can go out here and get this check, I gotta make sure there's food, bread, and butter on the table in the midst of all that. But I would go into the, um, I would go into completely different hotel, and I was alone. So now I'm alone on the road. I'm alone. I'm somewhere else up on stage, and I'm also somewhere else when I'm sitting around. I'm doing interviews and traveling and all of that. The only thing at that time, like I said in the book, was real to me when I was home. But then I didn't even want to be here no more because I'm thinking I can't run no more, so I'm worthless to my wife and kids too. So imagine where I was at. And it's it's amazing that you you've turned been able to or fortunate to 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 turn. Your your depression, uh, the, the the thoughts right. of suicide, into a very productive thing, and and I'm just going to leave on one more, just one more question. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, the, you know, we we talk about what Run DMC the band had given to pop culture. I mean, you, you talk about the sh- the style, and one of the things that everyone will remember you by is the Adidas, and, and how they had no right. the Adidas shoes, no shoelaces, because as as the reason was that you couldn't have shoelaces in jail because someone might hang themselves. Right. And you right. once said, my Adidas only bring good news, and they are not used as felon shoes, meaning right. they are not here for suicide. And and, and right. uh, that's it's kind of, um, uh, you've come out on the other side, it seems. Yep, yep. I guess what we what Run DMC did was, um, you know, artistically, conceptually, with our images, with what we talked about, how we made our music, we took things, and I didn't know that I did this. That's what I'm doing with the book. I described the book as the book is a DMC record without music, but the same way I always talked about the good things that I did that brought about good, I'm able to talk about the bad things that I've been through so that everybody can have a good outcome. I was able, always able to take something that was considered bad, something that was, con- you know, hip-hop at the time when it was first came out, it was very, it was about communities, it was about poverty, it was a, it was a message, it was broken glass everywhere, it was effed up. But because we had hip-hop, because we was had hip-hop, Chuck D and Public Enemy able to say, he said, man, we took nothing and made it out of something. So I was always able to take what was given to me and turn it around, making it good. I was able to take our music that was separate, 
that was separated what Steven Tyler did in the Walk This Way video with the mic stand when he knocked the wall down. People say, yo, D, that didn't just happen in the video. That really happened in the world, in culture, in people's lives. So we was already, we, we was able to take good things and have a good outcome. The same way I always talked about Christmas time in Hollis, Queens, St. John's University, son of Byford, that's my mother, that's my father. My Adidas, we took what was considered, if you see any young people with those fresh new sneakers on, those are the problems in our community. They were partially right. The first thing a drug dealer does when he gets some money for selling drugs is go buy new sneakers. But on that street corner was three or four other kids who, one kid had three and four jobs that he worked just to get a pair of Adidas. One kid, um, DMC, um, he, he, he just got off the road um, two weeks ago. He was on stage at Live Aid standing next to Tina Turner and Mick Jagger mm. rapping. So we was able to take negative stereotypes of young people or young situations. Yes, there's drug dealers. We was able to make a record about a drug dealer, but then say, but y'all don't have to be drug dealers. We was able to tell a story about a guy in the gang, and then on that same record say, y'all don't have to be in the gangs. When you look at um, our entertainment now and our media now, um, it's not just a, a, a hip-hop problem. America itself, corporate America, will celebrate you musically and artistically if you're if you're an illiterate, disrespectful, egotistical fool, but you're making money, you will be allowed to participate. We'll put you on the front cover. Every time we'll make a magazine, we'll see you. But when you got the young person that's singing, don't be destructive, don't destroy your community, don't get high, don't go to school, don't just... Don't um um um. You don't gotta sell drugs. You don't gotta be in a gang. You don't need illegal weapons. You know what I'm saying? Those guys barely get heard anymore. You know we gotta fight to be heard. Run DMC. When we got the opportunity to be in that position, we made sure there was a good outcome for everybody. So I look at me the same way I rapped about how dope it was to go to St. John's University. I gotta turn the music off and tell people, yeah, man, I was suicidal too. Because me saying I might connect with a young man or a young girl or an older man or an older woman or somebody over in Germany. When I put the, when I put out that I was adopted, I was getting so much feedback on um on my Twitter from people. I'm an orphan from the Bosnia. I can't even say the word. The Bosnia Herzegovina War. And DMC is. I'm so happy yeah. that you're shouting out us of orphans. I felt so alone, but now I feel in a good position because DMC <laughs> is an orphan. You know, a foster kid is basically an orphan, somebody that right. can't be with their real parents. They're placed in foster care with the hope of being back with their parents. But these kids coming from war don't. Well, probably will never see if my parents got killed in the war. Um, I was able to identify with all the um, the child soldiers out of Africa. There was a child soldier out of Africa, who, Emmanuel Jal, who said, I, I learned English because I heard Run DMC. I was a wild kid who got, I got captured by the, the, the rebels at age nine, and from nine to 12, I ran through the jungle killing my own people. Then I got rescued by the UN. They tried to rehabilitate me, but I was stabbing other kids in the eye and the hands with pencils, and then one day, one of my counselors brought in a Run DMC tape, and that was the only thing that made me sit down and listen. I looked at the radio, and I was asking my counselor, what's that, what's that? And the counselor gave me the tape, and he said the only reason he went to school 
but so he can learn English, so he can learn what the rapper man was saying. Once he learned that what we were saying, he said he thought all hip-hop was gangster rap. But he said, I started hearing rappers talk about school being cool, and you've got to empower your people, and you've got to do positive things. This guy went and got his high school diploma, then went and got a degree from college and music, and it became one of the most well-known um, um, South Sudanese um, music artists. And he brought me to South Sudan to perform for his people. And that was a whole other thing. So when I did this, when I did this book, this book is actually no different from Christmas time in Hollis, Queens, Mom's Cooking Chicken in Collard Greens. People ask me, what's going on with you, DMC? I tell them that. And even though, um, you know, I'm telling them, you know, suicide and depression and alcoholism, I, by me telling my story makes them see hope in themselves or hope for somebody that they know going through the same thing. And going back to the Run DMC thing, when you first saw Run DMC, Run DMJ, you didn't see celebrity. I know a guy just like that guy, Jam Master J. That guy run talks just like my brother. Or I got an uncle that asked him, wait, yo, that quiet guy, DMC, man, what's up with him? You know, he only talks when he's on records. There got to be more than him. So what I do, I realize what I do artistically what I do as a person is just as important and powerful also. Well, we've been talking with Daryl McDaniels, uh, inspiration with his band Run DMC, inspiration now as a public speaker, and uh, inspiration to the youth. You can find his book, 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, in stores right now. Daryl, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. I appreciate you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about the first six months of book sales for 2016. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Richard Zacks, the author of Chasing the Last Laugh, and we're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. And every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to give us an overview of the first six months of this year's book sales. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. So um, we just got the uh, numbers in, or I guess recently, from Nielsen uh, BookScan, and um, how do you want to approach this? you want to go an overview to talk about general fiction, nonfiction, or do you want to get right to titles? And I will take the, the big approach okay, first, good, Mark, good. because uh, I guess the headline is that uh, the print revival uh, seemed to continue in the first half of uh, 2016, as had been written about uh, quite a lot at the end of uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Print sales uh, went up, and that was the first time that it had sort of a meaningful increase in a few years, especially since the the rise of ebooks, you know, five or six years ago. So publishers were excited about that as well as bookstores. And what we found uh, for the first half of uh, this year was that print units were up about 6% uh, over the same period last year. Wow, that's pretty good. That's pretty good news. I mean, is this across the board, nonfiction and fiction? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much driven by uh, nonfiction, and in this case, particularly uh, adult nonfiction. And it's 
coming from the sort of the same place that drove a lot of the gains last year, and that is adult coloring books. I was just going to ask how uh, coloring books figured into this. Yeah, well, they're they're leading the way. You know, they're classified in a couple of different of subgenres, mm. if you will, within adult nonfiction, and those those categories were up. One was up like a hundred and thirty percent. Another one was up about fifty percent. And a lot of that was was driven by uh, the adult coloring book phenomenon, which which still continues. It's pretty impressive. I mean, I, I when we first started talking about it, when you first started reporting on it, it seemed like it would just be kind of this this maybe this like blip, but it just continues. Yeah, it's still it's still continuing. Uh, we're ready for another onslaught of new titles and different variations uh, for the second half of the year. You know, around the holidays and around the elections. Uh, we've been told there's a lot of Trump coloring books in the works, <laughs> along with a, a few tied to Hillary, I believe. Right. Yeah. So there's going to be there's going to be more, and it, you know, it's, sales aren't going to rise as fast as they did last year, but you know, it still looks like it's a very very uh, strong category. And uh, what about children's books? Children's is suffering from the same sort of thing that adult fiction is mm -hmm. there's no real new big blockbuster title that's driving sales at all right. which you know sort of on the flip side just going back to coloring books for a second the one thing that's been really good about it for the industry is that virtually every publisher has some sort of coloring books mm -hmm. so they're, they're all benefiting that you know lots of times when you have these big books that drive sales you know it really falls into the hands of a couple of a couple of publishers because if you looked at last year at this time uh the big book was the girl on the train and right. we had gray had been out for a month so those both had sales of over 700,000 copies each mm -hmm. but those are only for i think they're both random house right. so you know it benefited one particular publisher the adult coloring book trend you know, affected everybody positively. Right. But this year, like we said, it, it's actually relatively shocking for the lack of a big new book so far this year. I mean, right. the top title so far for uh, for 2016 was All the Places You Go by Dr. Seuss, which, as most people know, is not a new book. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And and there seems to be, I, I mean, a, a look at the list. I mean, there seemed to be a couple of Dr. Seuss books on there and still Harry Potter. Right. Yeah, we have a Harry Potter. That's the coloring book. Uh, um, right, right. But, uh, Mark, you're probably thinking of the new book that's coming out in the end of July, The Cursed Child. Right. So that, you know, that's going to have a big printing, you know, in, in the millions. And so people are hoping that's going to drive booksellers, uh, sales for them right. with uh, bringing new customers uh, right. in the second half of the year. Yeah. So we'll see how that works. Other than that, you know, if you go down the list, um, the life-changing magic of tidying up. I've got to say, she's uh, Marie Kondo's on there twice, the Spark uh, Spark Joy and both those books. So that's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... <laughs> that's just kind of taken a stranglehold on, on uh, the American public. <laughs> yeah, I guess a lot of people had stuff to clean up. So uh, and it still continues to do well. And then, you know, the big winner uh, from an author standpoint uh, was, you know, uh, Jojo Moyes in the Me Before You. And right. there's, uh, she's got three different versions of her book on the top 20, um, all due to the, the movie. Right.
And could part of this, I, I mean, so usually the, the big, big season that comes the second half of the year, a lot of publishers wait for their big books to come out then. Do you think there might be a change the first half versus the second half? Well, there's two things that play into that this year. The election right. could drive a lot of nonfiction because we know there's a lot of books around Trump and, and Hillary mm-hmm. in the offing. But the flip side to that is everybody's anticipating a very active mm-hmm. campaigning season, right. which is going to take a lot of airtime away from the shows a lot of authors appear on. So we've right. already had publishers telling us that, you know, that they're a little more concerned than they are in a usual election year because, you know, Trump has really sucked a lot of the air out of the room in terms of news coverage from, you know, a lot of the talk shows right. that uh, authors regularly appear on. Right. And so since it's likely to be a relatively hot contest, there could be a lot of talk around uh, around the election and you know all the news coverage and even the soft coverage on like today's show and stuff yep. you know is all presidential right yeah. yeah 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 and and i've seen that in print too uh space that might have been given for maybe not book reviews but a kind of soft coverage of a, of a book or, or a lifestyle piece of the book is getting taken up by again presidential coverage right now exactly yeah. so that's that's a downside but i uh, i would be shocked if we we don't see some of these nonfiction titles about the candidates. I mean, maybe even a Bernie Sanders title or so yeah. thrown in there for good measure that don't really do well. Because, you know, you know, they have, you know, Swift Boat back uh, right. a generation ago, you know, so phenomenal numbers. And, you know, I think fair to say had some sort of impact on that. Yeah. That election uh, when Kerry lost. So it's. It's going to be an interesting second half of the year. I think publishers have to be relatively pleased that uh, units are where they are for the first half of the year, given, as we've said, you know, nothing really standing out. I mean, last year in July, we had Ghost Out of Watchmen. Right. That's right. You know, yeah, yeah, was yeah, the yeah. biggest print yeah. uh, right. seller in like seven years. Right. And that was that came out a year ago uh, last July. Right. So... They have that to contend with. There's nothing on the horizon like that in the adult world. But, you know, Potter is definitely going to draw some numbers. Yeah. Yep. This is true. And that's coming at the end of August? End of July. End of July. Right. And so not too long. No. No. And I, even on today's uh, uh, best-selling list for nonfiction, there were three three of the four or five debut books in the top 20 were political books. Uh, and that's not counting the the other books that have been on the list for, for, for a week or two anyway. Yeah, well, so. it certainly seems that it's an election a lot of people want to read more about. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Mark, even if you're solo. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Yaa Jesse, the author of Homegoing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. Join us next week for another great interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 